Uh, hello everyone, uh, my name is Ainsley and I'm curator at CCA. Um, I'm just going to give a short introduction to tonight's event. Um, yeah, I've just prepared something so I'm just going to read it out. So with this event tonight we've been thinking um, what it means to inhabit the, the city and, and Nina Power's words primarily in the mode of listening. Um, to what voices we hear and how stories are told to us. And we're delighted to have Nina and Laura here tonight um, to explore how voices and sounds psychically and unconsciously guide us through the city, disrupt our desires and regulate the way we're supposed to feel. Um, so we're going to begin tonight with a sound piece that Laura Oldfield Ford produced earlier this year as part of an exhibition we had, uh, which was called The Sky is Falling, and the, the work's called Radiant Futures. Um, and it was developed or produced in collaboration with Jam City, Jack Latham. And it's the result of a derive through the former Gorbals neighbourhood of Hutchison Town Sea and the new town of uh, the Scottish new town of Cumbernauld. And Radiant Futures recalls the de a demolition and an, an exodus from the city before drifting back to the remnants of the new Gorbals, infused with Detroit techno recalling the post-industrial and musical links between the two cities. And the theory of derive or, or drifting is at the heart of Laura's practice as she walks through the space, or through urban space, to commune with the psychic and emancipatory potentials of, our, of space, as well as the weird and the eerie, creating an alternative narrative and legacy to the downtrodden and familiar story of modernist ruin. And Laura's practice allows us to think psychogeographically about the world and how we can consider space spiritually, how space can elucidate moments of joy, rage and haunting, and how listening through cities can reveal other and poetic qualities for the spaces we inhabit. So after my introduction, um, uh, sorry, we'll go straight into this sound work, and then after that, Nina's going to talk for about 30 or 40 minutes. Um, Nina's work for a number of years has explored the disembodied and often female voice as it appears or sounds in public space, and how these voices are supposed to elicit calm and reassurance while simultaneously asserting authority, what she calls soft coercion. Tonight's event forms part of the event programme for Lilt Wang Tremor, a group, a group show by the artists Sarah Rose, Susanna Stark and Hannah Taliki, which is downstairs and it closes on the 14th of January if you haven't seen it. And in the show, the disposition of public space has been important for each of the artists to, to consider, with the cities of Glasgow and Edinburgh, the Greek Agora, the marketplace, luxury flats, public transport, the so-called wilderness, the Hebridean islands, variously featured throughout the gallery. In each of the artists' work, we can see a questioning of how voice or sounds are held, absorbed, altered, felt or embodied. And the title of the show was taken by an essay that Nina wrote called Eloquence Beyond Words in a publication called Ampersand Labels or And Labels, which was published by Dun Duncan of Jordanson in 2013, the Cooper Gallery. It was his fifth edition. And in it, Nina quotes the writer Anne Karpf, who states, throughout our lives, we make decisions, often unwittingly, on the basis of the sound of a person's voice. Lovers, as well as political candidates, get selected for vocal reasons. Our lilt, twang, or tremor are eloquent, often beyond words. And Nina Power states in response in the essay, I want to know what it means for politics if we forget or sideline the curious capacities of the voice to elicit love or other confused or conflicted feelings. Do we still need to believe in the voice that performs conviction, that persuades as well as conveys? What would it mean to disassociate the content from the instrument that carries it? 
And in our exhibition, the artists are attempting to explore this very question. In Sarah Rose's work, how the voice becomes rumour, how the message held by the voice is altered by its vocal transmission. In Hannah Taliki's work, how the voice is embodied as an instrument and carries with it the ecology or topology of a place. And in Susanna Stark's installation, how we might rethink the affect of public address through rhythm, emotion, cheekiness and contradiction. And just to finish, I just wanted to share one last thought. Um, when Susanna, Sarah, Hannah and I agreed on the title of, uh, for the show over email, Voicelessly, uh, Susanna shared the following contemplation, which has stayed with me and I shared with Nina. Um, it hopefully sets up the discussion and I hope Susanna doesn't mind because it was really beautiful. Lilt, twang and tremor feels like the rumbling before the riot, shifting borders, a shadowy realm of, of the oral, the uncontrollable verbalations and rawness of speech erupting beneath the smooth sheen of seductive speech, the flows of capital. Perhaps all we can hear from the surface is a tremor, the trace of an accent or a nuance of identity, but threatening to erupt, disturbing from the shadows. So, and at the end, Laura and Nina are going to have a short discussion, um, a Q&A, and then we'll have some questions from the audience. We should finish about 8.15, something like that. But thank you very much for being here and hope you enjoy. to return to those empty blocks, the retreading and circuiting of muddy tracks. From outside it looked monolithic, Hutchison Town Sea, a brooding slab marooned in the shifting sediments of the gorbals. But his knowledge reached like vines through landings and stairwells coiled around the micro-worlds inside. That flat was their kingdom, him and his brother. The centre was under the kitchen table, where crayon drawings of screens and dials marked hidden territories. He remembers the coral pink wallpaper, the iridescent sheen, raised pattern beneath your fingertips, 
felt tip on the wall behind the settee where she couldn't see what you were doing. He remembers coming in from the icy black, the smell of the gas fire and the dull orange glow when the lights were off. Geometric wallpaper, brown velvet cushions and the 70s fireplace hewn from stone. Thought of that room as a cabin, a crow's nest high above the city, St. Francis below and the Clyde and breweries beyond. In his dreams he still moved around it, gliding into the kitchenette with its windows looking down on the veranda. The stove with its flowers of blue flame. And the bathroom with its mauve walls, black lino and the smell of dettol. The bedrooms were downstairs and he'd go around his pals after school thinking their houses must be upside down. There was his grand's room that they weren't allowed to play in. They sneaked in sometimes, and he remembers the smell of talc and furniture polish. There were figurines and jewellery and glass dishes on a dressing table, and all the makeup there. The wallpaper was pink and white stripes like boiled sweets. And him and his brother would draw patterns under the bed where she wouldn't notice. Little biro webs, filaments spanning those rounds. Sometimes, in their bedroom, they'd get balls of wool and make webs out of the whole room, winding and weaving until she couldn't get the door open. The room was done out Celtic, green and white. Sometimes their mum would turn up with presents and his gran would wait in the kitchen until she'd gone. The mica table, steamy film on pale pink tiles, mould scattered across the ceiling, black dots nestling in the walls. Sometimes it would swarm wallpaper buckling behind sooty patches. Then there'd be bleach and rent strikes and calls to renovate the block. His grand told him about the tenements and courses before. Midden, she'd call them. Damp and dirty, couldn't imagine. They'd been six in a room then. Two little rooms in a sandstone tenement. Red walls punctured with black, painless windows.
He'd felt that spirit gripping the block again in the 80s, the sliding back to the damp, the disorientation of neglect. Blokes hanging around under the building, scrawled threats unfurling across the concrete. Pilotti's arcing like gothic vaults, the dankness of a ruined cathedral. But still his gram resisted. They were among the last out. They were among the last out. The tenements and closes of the gorbals were her neural pathways, the topography of her psyche. Cleland Bar, Horseshoe, St. Francis. She knew every wall and pavement. She was born in the Gorbals in 1917. She always said the day she left would be the day she gave up. But when it came to it, after years of uncertainty, she was glad to be getting rehoused at all. Anything to keep them together. The council gave her the house in Cumbernauld she started going to the Sacred Heart on Kyle Road. There were faces from the Gorbal ship seen for years. It's like seeing folk back from the dead. Mr. Bob them. Mr. Bob them. Left us where we were because we were really happy. He says on the day of the demolition, he felt aggrieved. There were journalists and blokes from the council acting like it was a carnival. He thought the occasion should be sombre, recognised as a loss. September 12, 1993. He remembers the weather then, the languid stillness of an Indian summer. A strange, unexpected heat. The leaves beginning to rust. Parched grass-like straw. He was relieved it was over. It was depressing seeing the blocks empty. Like waiting for a cremation. Knowing the body was lying there with the life taken from it. A sense of hope had flickered that when the demolition came, the dreams would be released, blasted free, like thistledown, all these seeds carried, strewn across the land. He watched it with his brother and some of the lads he'd grown up with. They acted like they weren't bothered, said it was a chance to get everyone together for a drink in the tavern but he knew they were shaken. Vexation of the spirit, that's what his gran called it, when a mood possessed the city. And he knew when he heard of the poor woman killed by a shard of debris, that it was one of those times.
We walk back from the big Tesco and Cumbernauld with daffodils and pink tulips. He always buys me flowers. The viaduct over the red burn, pebble-dashed walls, maisonettes spanning twisting paths. Pine trees, a paved yard, pink verbenum transmitting spring, an intoxicating, euphoric scent. Still can't go out in Glasgow much. I can't risk them working out where I've gone. I can't bear to think about what they'll do if they find out I'm here. We like hiding out in Cumbernauld, though. It's so cold and we've got it all snug in the house. I call it our little cottage, because when he first brought me here and we walked those winding paths, it reminded me of a fishing village. Pale cottages joined, perched over a muted palette of slate greys and ochres. This house is as close to the old flat in the Gorbals as she could make it. All the furniture came with her, and the paint colours she chose were an attempt at bringing it back into being. The old place was a capsule of the 70s, and you could still feel the decade wrapping around the walls and ceilings. How his gran had it is how we keep it. Not like a shrine, but because it's so cosy and the closeness of it makes us warm. The thick cream carpets, the rosy pink walls, little lamps like tulip petals. She always had tulips on the kitchen window ledge at the end of winter as a beacon, a forecast. Now it's February and sleet hits the window, little pellets like polystyrene. The sky is charcoal, threatening blizzards. We're back from Tesco with supplies, all kinds of tins and bottles, so we can hide out as long as we need to. There's no one bothering us here, no one asking questions. The neighbours all know it. We use the time to plot, to dream. We can go wherever we like now. And this is our vault hole, our secret hideout. We can go to the highlands from here, to Mullen Sky. He says he'll get us a car, an old Land Rover or something. We can take off when we want. The gas fire suffuses the room with a deep orange light. I'm snuggling to the pale leather settee. I feel sleepy. Nicola Sturgeon on the TV. The tube must be broken because the picture has an eerie phosphorescent glow. Ectoplasm leaching over the screen like a lava lamp. I'm drifting off. It's the gas fire. Cocodamol and a glass of Sauvignon Blanc in the carrot stone at lunchtime. We're going there sometimes, the new weather spoons. So warm, 
cheaper to have a few drinks there than heat your flat. It's Valentine's coming up, and today they had a table laid out with red roses and pink hearts. The deal or no deal fruit machine still there in the background. Edmund's face glowing, replicating. Says his gran used to love that show. Strange and cultish. She was fascinated by the systems, the superstitions they held on to. Voices coming through that grey velvet of sleep. Stories unfolding. Dreams fusing with mine. After that frantic rush last autumn, the escape north on the train, I thought I was going to a spell of calm, a safe house, a friend's spare room. I guess though, when I saw the standing stones in a field past Penrith, that I was crossing to a new phase. I knew something was brewing, that I must be on the brink of something momentous. The night I met him was an end and a beginning, a liminal zone. He was just there, like an apparition, a visitation. All those flights of stairs, an abandoned building. It felt like a hospital or something. A social club in the 1970s. Hexagonal dance floors and brutalist walls. We were dancing. We were dancing. We were dancing. We were dancing. I didn't even know it. But we connected in a skein of mesmerizing sounds. I remember how the room seemed amber. Dissolving into a dusky pink. I remember the concrete ceiling like a honeycomb. Like the giant's causeway. And the view of the city cast beneath us. Glowing, sandstone grid. Just the way it felt to be with him. As if everything was alright. Like heroin. An opiate content. Every day, his biography was inscribed on every wall, every surface. Those first walks were cold, marrow aching in my bones, 
Southern Necropolis, St. Francis, the Rose Garden. But there was another city hidden behind it, a map of bolt holes, cosy rooms nestling in sandstone walls. We started at the Caledonian church, surly sandstone block with Greek motifs and hexastyle portico. Echoes of Freemasonry, everywhere in Glasgow, he said, a persistent, unsettling current. I recognised the key pattern, the meandros, always there. It looked like a mausoleum, but the surface seemed molten, alive somehow, hollows and lacunae opening in the walls. Brushed its skin with my fingertips, traced roses carved in stone. The windows bricked up, sealing the blackened chancel. I felt the blue paint blistering, bubbling up from the doors. They told me it was burnt out and closed off in the 60s, but he knew ways in. The yard this Bodleian and rubble heaps had been another point on their map. Him and his brother said you could still smell the smoke in the 1990s. It stayed in the walls like a warning, a persistent drone. He showed me a field of silver birch, mounds of brick and Bodleian. He wanted me to see the imprint, the line of elder, the new sycamores outlined in the spectral edge. I knew that by taking me there, he was letting me in, giving me his hand. New belts, new belts, sandy millennial sandy messes. He mocked their attempts to echo Hutchison Town Sea. He showed me the concrete feet, an allusion to the Pilates before. The cul-de-sacs and avenues of the new gobbles were damp and stained like the old blocks. He described how it all looked before, damp seeping up from the ground, wind and rain lashing buildings unfit for the Glasgow weather. The architects imagine Marseille, blocks like ocean liners with playgrounds and sun courts. We said we'd go to Marseille, stay in the unité, see how it was supposed to be. Sitex on the upper windows, fragment from the old gobbles, smears and daubs, no distinction between the walls and the pavement, charred wood, cigarette ends, moss. It looked like a watercolour painting, all the colours streaking and running together, everything fluid and muddy. 
railway arches. A recurring symbol, painted lozenges, black and white. A sigil shawl surrounding adverts for luxury housing. He told me there were similar attempts to thwart the demolition of Hotchisi, but they misfired. A vault of junk, yellow light, doors opening onto heaps of bric-a-brac, snares and tangles of roads, disorientated with hoods up, deaf and cold in the sleep, buckfast bottles smashed on the cobbles. Sometimes, after these drifts around the gorbals, it'd go to the brazen head, conjoined arches beneath the railway. I like the glowing alcoves, the neon shamrocks multiplying in the mirrors, hiding out in corners with shots of Jameson's. It's telling me everything. I'm telling him everything. Dark eyes, sometimes flecks of green, stones in the riverbed, mercurial and ageless. And now, with his voice weaving stories in the living room combinant, he imagined new spaces opening, an awakening like Bohemia, an ecstatic flowering of new possibilities.
Yeah, thanks, Laura. <laughs> um, I want to say thank you to Ainsley for the invitation to come here. And I'm very happy that we managed to make it here, uh, despite the, uh, you know, snow bomb and all of this sort of, uh, you know, slightly uh, hysterical description of the, the weather. Uh, but we did, and here you go. So uh, I wanted to talk about... I suppose it's a, an ongoing project yeah, in many ways, and um, in Ainsley's um, excellent introduction, she mentioned some of the work I've been doing over the years, which has started off, I suppose, thinking about the relationship between women and, women and technology in a kind of, you know, in relation to, to capitalism. And then I was thinking about noise music, and, and I looked at the work of Jessica Ryland and what it might mean to make your own machines as, a, as an artist. Um, and then this kind of work thinking about um, gender and technology became much more thinking about the city um, and what it means to kind of uh, live in a city like London where you're surrounded by these, these kind of uh, roboticized or, or, or pre-recorded disembodied uh, female voices on the tube. Um, so the voice of uh, Emma Clark in particular, who I've written about, who's the voice of the, the tube, who is actually... Uh, sacked in a complicated way because she she made some kind of parodies of her own voice and and what does it mean to for her to do that if if her voice doesn't exactly belong to her in certain ways it belongs to TFL and she can't uh, use it in in a you know a funny uh, way if you like and I wanted just to play a really brief uh, clip she's not actually that some of them are not that funny the parodies but. Um, some of them, <laughs> some of them are. See if this works. Passengers are reminded that, like all voiceover artists, I probably look nothing like you imagine, and may turn out to be somewhat of a disappointment. Okay, that's the funniest one, anyway. But um, also, I was very interested in this relationship between the the images of women in the city, so like these kind of bodies without voices, and then voices without bodies. Um, and I suppose particularly why this kind of preference for the female-sounding voice uh, in the city where you have like 70% of voices are female-sounding and obviously uh, this in no way matches up to representation in a political sense. Um, so even where you have kind of political leaders, I don't know, I think about Elizabeth I a lot lately, but we don't have recordings of her obviously, but uh, Thatcher <laughs> and, and Thatcher's own voice training and then Theresa May but even where you have those situations of these, of these sort of uh, these odd women in positions of power of course under austerity it's women who are profoundly much more affected there isn't uh, you know uh, e equal representation in parliament whatsoever but nevertheless the experience of the city if you're walking around is definitely one, nevertheless, one of, you know, this kind of female sound in transport hubs um, where you're never quite sure whether they're public or private and you kind of scurry through them. They're kind of very, uh, very strange, but also in supermarkets and the replacement of actual uh, cashiers, many of whom are female, with the, the, the female sounding machines uh, in all the supermarkets. And I got very uh, obsessed with this uh, experience of the city and came up with this idea of soft coercion. So what does it mean to uh, be told to do something in a way that doesn't sound explicitly authoritarian? Uh, and it felt to me that there was a, a kind of uh, a big ideological problem with the way in which women's voices were being used uh, to do this. You know, even if there wasn't something necessarily menacing about being told that your train was on a platform, nevertheless, there's a kind of symptomatic, uh, symptomatic of a particular kind of political uh, sort of 
deadlock or situation that didn't kind of capture uh, the reality of people's lives in certain ways. Um, so that was kind of earlier work, and I, I wanted to try and do something a bit moved on from that um, today and, and think about the politics of pitch uh, in particular um, and why there is this kind of um, politics around the voice and gender, I suppose, uh, in particular. Um, so the, the title of the talk really is, is, is Who Speaks, Who Listens? Question mark. And I think there's something deliberate about the, the kind of uh, um, rising terminals <laughs> of the question, which is something that women are often accused of uh, very negatively, you know, to speak, speaking uh, uh, in an upwards way as if they're not quite certain of what they're saying. Um, and it's very, uh, yeah, it's often very criticised. So uh, in a 2012 article entitled Why We Prefer Masculine Voices Even in Women, the author, Megan Garber, reported that study after study has suggested that low voices, masculine inverted commas voices, are an asset to those seeking leadership roles in politics and beyond. Masculine voices, time and time again, uh, in situations of politics and power, are seen to be more attractive, more competent, and more trustworthy. Women who speak in lower tones are also positively read according to this bias, um, according to this research, though past a certain depth, lower voice women are deemed to be less physically attractive, which kind of proves my idea that you can be uh, an image uh, without a, a voice or a, and a voice without a, a, a body, uh, which is Emma Clark's joke, I suppose. Um, about being a voiceover artist, and I think we've have, we have a lot of uh, cultural uh, products, films, and so on that, that kind of increasingly sort of fetishise and investigate this uh, fantasy of a disembodied voice, like films like Her, for example. Um, and obviously, this is kind of thinking about personal or intimate technologies like Siri. Um, I'll mention again later. Um, in the 2012 research project uh, entitled Preference for Leaders with Masculine Voices Holds in the Case of Feminine Leadership Roles by Rindy C. Anderson and Casey A. Klofstad, they note that even where in hypothetical elections for feminine leadership roles, so for example, they use this uh, uh, hypothetical situation in the American context for a, a parent-teacher associations, which are typically associated uh, with women taking leadership roles, um, that, quote, men and women preferred female candidates with masculine voices. Likewise, men preferred men with masculine voices. Women, however, did not discriminate between male voices. What is it about masculine voices that makes us listen more, regardless of what our own voice might sound like? Are we inculcated to associate depth of pitch with authority? Over the years, Laurie Anderson has used techniques of audio drag to parody what she calls the voice of authority uh, when she performs as her kind of male alter ego called Fenway Bergamo. Uh, who she describes as sometimes as a blowhard pontificating idiot, and other times as a sort of melancholy man. Um, and I just want to play a short clip uh, from a 2012 uh, record called Another Day in America on this. And so finally, here we are at the beginning of a whole new era. The start of a brand new world. And now what? How do we start? 
How do we begin again? There are some things you can simply look up, such as the size of Greenland, the dates of the famous 19th century rubber wars, Persian adjectives, the composition of snow, and other things you just have to guess at. And then again, today is the day, and those were the days, and now these are the days. And now the clock points histrionically to noon. Some new kind of north. Um, I started to look into some of these kind of leadership training uh, programs, um, particularly in the wake of thinking about the kind of lean-in feminism of, of someone like uh, Cheryl Sandberg, well, that's her uh, term, um, in which uh, this idea that kind of overperforming uh, the role of a, a business person will somehow, um, you know, kind of induce equality uh, in capitalism, at least for people who are uh, CEOs uh, and so on. Um, and so I, I, I looked at somebody, this guy called Gary Jennard, who promotes the Jennard method, which he describes as a kind of performance-based public speaking training. He writes the following. One reason my recent client had a voice that sounded too young is that she spoke with too much head voice. A key distinction you should know, he says, is the dichotomy between head voice and chest voice one thin and lightweight as if it consisted of air, and the other sounding as though it's been left in the basement like an old stuffed chair. It's very poetic. Although Jenner claims that his technique applies to men and women alike, he nevertheless makes it clear just how gendered the assumptions he engages with are. Too pink a voice uh, with work, he says, can suddenly um, begin to reveal a more, more burgundy tones reflecting the maturity and steadfastness of a leader. We should sound more like stuffed chairs and red wine and less like air and young girls. Um, and I think it's interesting uh, that Beyonce, for example, uses audio drag uh, on uh, some of her recent uh, records uh, and also has a kind of male uh, alter ego. Um, and I think there are in, in lots of kind of contemporary work around, you know, mu music, musicians and kind of sonic work um, around this question of uh, audio drag is actually quite uh, radical in, in, in lots of ways. Um, but why should we associate this 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 um, authority with depth and competency? Why should we listen to those with masculine voices and ignore those who speak in higher registers? Behind these strange images of chairs and wine and the association of business with domination, as if we are talking about chimpanzees and banana hoarding rather than Gary from accounts, lies another image of the one, the person least listened to, the young girl with a high voice, the polar opposite of authority, of business, of competency. Supremacy depends upon the hierarchical pitching of men against women, low voices against high, age against youth. And here the frame of the sonic clashes with the realm of the visual, where the image of the young girl is dominant, yet the actual young girl is with, without power. Um, and I think there's a kind of interesting thing we can, we can you know, when we're thinking about these, these disembodied voices and these uh, disvoiced 
bodies, <laughs> I suppose, uh, how they, they might actually mismatch in certain ways. So curiously, uh, the, the voice of authority, uh, the female voice of authority would, would look like something like a young girl, but would have a much deeper uh, voice, if that even makes uh, any sense. But could the voice of the young girl then uh, become a site of resistance? In a very recent article from December the 4th, uh, just now, like this month, entitled Fear of the Female Voice, uh, Sarah Gailey points out that, quote, for millennia, Western society has insisted that female voices, just that, our voices, are a threat. We're afraid of wolves, and we're afraid of bears, and we're afraid of women. And she tracks this through the kind of the, the myth of the sirens and the question about whether the sirens are actually um, singing or not, whether they're silent, um, is an interesting one about the, the body or voice uh, question. One of the difficult things about her claim, though, I think, is that women and girls are hardly ever taught that their voices could be a threat. Although I think often of that Margaret Atwood quote about, you know, uh, uh, men are afraid that women will uh, laugh at them, women are afraid that men will kill them. Uh, rather, therefore, we are taught to be afraid as women and girls, often with good reason. But precisely because of this paradoxical fear, we are also taught to use our voices, the fear of the female voice, to soften life for others, particularly men. The parameters for the range of the female voice are remarkably narrow in a social uh, sense and highly classed and highly raced. Women should not dominate conversation and research shows that people are apt to wildly overestimate the percentage of time women speak for um, so that if men... Uh, so. In practice, men speak 70% of the time in mixed-gendered groups, um, and Dale Spender's work uh, in previous decades um, showed that men think that women dominate conversation when they speak only 30% of the time, um, and uh, that conversation is equal when women speak only 15% of the time. So there's a huge mismatch between kind of perception uh, and reality. Uh, in terms of who gets to speak and who dominates conversations. Women shouldn't shout, criticise, scream, demand, laugh too much and never at men. Stereotypes abound too. The overly loud working class woman, the angry black woman, the mad woman, the hysterical woman, the whiny woman, the nag, the shrew, the witch who can control men with her voice, the seductress and so on. Michelle Obama was criticised for both, quote, talking like a white girl and for, quote, being too loud, too angry or too emasculating in her own, these are in her own words. So while we live in this highly visual culture, the voice nevertheless becomes the obscure site of politics. When we talk about the voice of the people or having a voice or not having a voice and so on, that it's really kind of intertwined the origins of how we think about politics, um, even though we might talk also about bodies and protests and a kind of participation on the street, um, the voice is there too. So Adriana Cavarero's work in For More Than One Voice uh, Towards the Philosophy of Vocal Expression points out that, quote, the human condition of uniqueness resounds in the register of the voice. Moreover, the voice shows that this condition is essentially relational. The simple truth of the vocal announced by voices without even the mediation of articulate speech communicates the elementary givens of existence, uniqueness, relationality, sexual difference, and age. <coughs> so voice is what singularizes us, Yes, at the same time, whole swathes of voices are not listened to precisely on the basis of their singularizing features. 
women's voices, um, and there are differences obviously between these voices, um, but have long been positioned as too much or not enough in the public realm. Anne Karp's work, she's already been mentioned uh, for her excellent work on the human voice. Um, she notes that, quote, belief in the unsuitability of women's voices for announcing began in the early days of radio in both the US and Britain. According uh, to the Daily Express in 1928, quote, many hardened listeners in maintain that Adam has a more natural broadcasting voice than Eve. Some listeners in go so far as to say that a woman's voice becomes monotonous after a time, that her high notes are sharp and resemble the filing of steel, where her, while her low notes often sound like groans. The female timbre was singled out for a particular opprobrium. The wireless correspondent of the Evening Standard suggested that women's high-pitched voices irritated many listeners and that they talked too rapidly, overemphasized unimportant words, or tried to impress listeners by talking beautifully. High voice in women was associated with demureness and low voice with sexuality. So, so that in a catch-22, the voice that escaped accusations of promiscuity wasn't considered authoritative enough for serious broadcasting. Um, and there's very interesting research that tracks the kind of uh, ever uh, deepening of, of women's voices uh, on the radio, uh, even after this period in which they were both, uh, yeah, sort of... I don't know, deemed incapable in, in, in whichever way. Uh, <laughs> so, but to return to Cavarero's point regarding the importance of the singularity of the voice, the, the female voice historically could not win, and I think perhaps continues not to be able to win in many ways. As Karp puts it, women were indicted both for conveying too much personality through their voices um, and she quotes, critics consider that women have never been able to achieve the impersonal touch when there was triumph or disaster to report, and the disaster thing is important in a minute, they were apt to reflect it in the tone of their voices, uh, but they were also indicted uh, for conveying too uh, little personality. Another quote from this period, for some reason a man can express personality better by voice alone than can a woman. America too threw up similar complaints about lack, Quote, few women have voices with, this, with distinct personality, according to the manager at Pittsburgh radio station, uh, but also excess. Perhaps the best reason suggested for the unpopularity of the woman's voice over the radio is that it usually has too much personality. So I think this criticism, this double-edged criticism of female voices has not ended. Think about the recent attacks um, on uptalk or rising terminals, as I've already mentioned, and vocal fry. Um, perhaps more about so seven or eight years ago, this was apparently you know, a terrible thing, uh, where young women uh, in particular are, are sort of picked out for, for sounding dumb or attempting to try and lower their voices, uh, where your voice kind of cracks um, as you speak. Hillary Clinton's voice uh, was described as uh, sticking in your ear, quote, like an ice pick, and ha she has been accused of making angels cry. Uh, Trump mocked her apparent robot voice at one rally, which will become relevant in a second. One of the aspects of the relationship between gender and voice that has most intrigued me over the years is the relationship between what can be pre-recorded and what cannot. That is to say, who gets to be the voice of emergency? So not just the voice of authority, but also the voice of emergency. Obviously, there are many security alerts and messages that can be and are pre-recorded. 
um, such as the Inspector Sands message, um, which you may have heard in kind of transport uh, situations, which is a coded alert. So it says like, will Inspector Sands please contact um, the supervisor or something like this, um, which is a coded alert that there is a fire somewhere in the station, because obviously you can't announce over the tannoy that there's a fire because then people will panic. Uh, so there's this, this kind of code phrase, but now everyone kind of is aware of this phrase. So, uh, you know, it's, 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 they might need to change it. But, and, and many of those Inspector Sands messages are recorded by women as well. So it's not that there's a kind of uh, a priori refusal that women can be the voice of, uh, voice of emergency uh, in, in that sense. Um, but what I'm really interested in is the end of the world announcements, the apocalyptic announcements. So the war book, which was draw drawn up during the Cold War, lays out what the BBC would do in the event of a nuclear exchange. And this is obviously still uh, relevant, um, even if we wouldn't put it in these the Cold War term exactly, something stranger maybe. The broadcaster BBC would move to 11 protected bunkers across the UK called deferred facilities, which would also house government staff and ministers, according to this book, which was kind of declassified in about mid-2000s. The pre-recorded war announcement, the so-called four-minute warning, uh, named after the approximate length of time from the point at which a Soviet nuclear missile attack against the UK could be confirmed, uh, was read, uh, pre-recorded, by Radio 4 newsreader uh, Peter Donaldson. Um, and I'm just going to bring it up. This country has been attacked with nuclear weapons. We shall bring you further information as soon as possible. Meanwhile, stay tuned to this wavelength, stay calm, and stay in your own house. A 1963 government publication states that in Scotland, however, <laughs> people would be informed by, quote, oral or whistle message rather than, <laughs> rather than sirens or church bells as used in the UK. Um, not sure why. <laughs> um, it was clear, though, that this voice, the pre-recorded voice of apocalypse and emergency, had to be well-known and reassuring. Okay, so... So Peter Donaldson, um, who died quite recently, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, um, you know, was kind of a familiar voice for anyone, anyone who'd listened to, to Radio 4. As Harold Greenwood from the Ministry of Post and Telecommunications put it in a 1974 letter, quote, an unfamiliar voice would lead listeners to conclude that perhaps after all, the BBC has been obliterated. The wartime broadcasting service was uh, decommissioned in 1992, and it is not clear what exactly has replaced it. And this is the kind of research I'm very, very interested in uh, now, which is to say what, what the kind of pre-recorded emergency messages uh, exist now. And it's very, very hard to find out. Uh, so if anyone knows, let me know. Um, but I'm also kind of interested in those, those situations where there cannot be a pre-recorded message, if you like. So the kind of, let's say, like the final TV uh, broadcast uh, and who would deliver it? Uh, would it be a man or a woman? Well, we would maybe sort of assume it would be uh, a man. Um, but I'm interested in the possibility of, of, of a kind of female announcer uh, announcing uh, the end of the world. 
Um, in an article entitled The Use of Male or Female Voices in Warning Systems, a Question of Acoustics, published in Noise and Health, a bi-monthly interdisciplinary international journal <laughs> from 2003, the various authors write, quote, speech warnings and communication systems are increasingly used in noisy, high workload environments. An important decision in the development of such systems is the choice of a male or female speaker. And this paper goes on to argue that despite the many misconceptions and kind of uh, sort of social, um, you know, influences uh, on this on this topic, um, that the choice of the speaker should depend uh, only on the overlap of noise and speech spectra. Um, and it's interesting if you think back about uh, radio announcers in World War II and, 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 you know, think of the opening scene of Paolo and Pressburger as a matter of life and death, uh, where you have the kind of female radio operator, and many times, you know, it's about having a voice that can be heard over um, machinery, um, historically. Um, so female voices, they nevertheless continue, do, however, appear to have an advantage in these emergency systems and warning systems in that they can portray a greater range of urgencies because of their usually higher pitch and pitch range. Um, but it's interesting when we think about this kind of situation of emergency and apocalypse, and of course that absolutely coincides with our existence as kind of capitalist consumerist subjects, however uh, critical and resistant we are, um, and in, in relation to these kind of uh, systems uh, like like Siri, the kind of Tannoy announcements, these kind of public public use of uh, female voices uh, in well semi-public spaces, we might say. Um, Clifford Nass, author of Wired for Speech, gives a kind of quite interesting argument about why, uh, why so many of these devices have female voices, even though this doesn't correspond to uh, political representation in any way. He suggests that people tend to perceive female voices as helping us to solve our problems by ourselves, while they view male voices as authority figures who tell us the answers to our problems. And in this sense, the lady vanishes. This might help us also to explain the upsetting and everyday experience of what has been tagged bro... <laughs> I can't even pronounce it. It's not really a very good word. Bro-propriating, but like appropriating by, by men. So this is very common experience of, of men taking a woman's idea and taking credit for it. Or So not just kind of uh, being mansplained to or, or being talked over, which happens all the time. And of course, you know, in those mixed uh, uh, group experiments, men speak for 70% of the time, but think that they're being, speaking for much, much less. Um, but this idea of bro-propriating, uh, I thought was, was very interesting. So the idea that women's voices are there merely as a kind of vanishing mediator between you and your own thoughts, um, and that some, some things like Siri and others um, actually might kind of perpetuate this mediating uh, fantasy. So why are so many personal assistants and public voices or semi-public voices female? Earlier this year, IKEA asked 12,000 people whether they wanted their AI, their artificial intelligence, to have a gender in the first place. And I think it's very interesting when we ask this question, thinking about the kind of long history of science fiction voices, of, of HAL 2000. And, and so one of the arguments is that uh, lots of companies don't want their technology to have a male voice because it's reminiscent of, of HAL in 2001 uh, and that, that people will be creeped out uh, by it. But lots of the default setting in the early days for GPS uh, were female voices, but there were kind of some interesting cultural differences. So in Germany, for example, I think it was in Audi or one of those cars, um, 
that actually lots of German uh, people, com men, <laughs> complained uh, that the voice was a default uh, female voice uh, because they didn't, they didn't want to be told what to do by a woman. Um, whereas I think in the general uh, reception of kind of feminized technology, both private and public, is that, you know, this is on a continuum with a kind of secretary or assistant or this, this kind of uh, thing, and, like, that's okay. Um, but it was quite interesting when Akira asked this, this question. It's not a deeply scientific survey in many ways. But 44% of people said that they would prefer the voice to be neutral, that they prefer AIs to have a neutral genderless voice or a degendered voice in some ways, more like a machinic voice. Um, although this 44% statistic actually uh, covered over the fact that it was 36% of men who said that and 62% of women. Um, so that actually far more women than men wanted uh, the voice of AI technology to be gender neutral, to, to sound machinic, to not sound like a man or a woman. And I wondered if whether there were, on some level women are sick of, of Siri et al's sexist continuum with ideas of the female secretary and female subservience, this idea of this kind of mediating helpful uh, role. Um, and I suppose I just want to maybe... Uh, well, OK, just one more clip, actually, sorry. There is a, a clip... I wanted to play, which is, is not a very good sample, but it's there. Are, so obviously when we're thinking about public transport um, around the world, and obviously we've got Emma Clark as the voice of the tube, even though she's been fired, she's still the voice, because of course they pre-recorded it. And then you have concatenation, which is the kind of putting together of uh, sort of algorithmically of parts of voice. So sometimes when you hear an announcement, you know, the 9.52 to Penzance, will be, you know, it's, it's broken down into sort of uh, these concatenated parts. Um, but in various uh, places, very few places actually, but in San Francisco and Oakland Bay in their rapid uh, Bay Area rapid uh, transit system, um, they actually in 2009 replaced pre-recorded human voices, whether male or female, with uh, automated voices that, that weren't human, if you like. So they actually did try to do this thing that, that, that um, IKEA were, were asking that question, why, why should our AIs be... Uh, sound like human beings. Um, okay, so the, these voices were designed by Lucent Technologies, um, who also work in text-to-speech technology. Uh, and they had a male voice, a male robotic voice called John, and a female voice called Grace. Um, and so they, uh, they alternate the, uh, uh, these uh, voices, although they're, they're not human. I mean, they're gendered, but they're not human. And I'll, and I'll try to show you how in a second. But... They, they use male voices on odd number platforms and female voice, voices on even number platforms, but they don't sound uh, human. Um, but people didn't really re like the, um, the lack of personality, to go back to that question earlier, about whether voices are expressing too much or too little character or personality. So I'm just going to play... Six car three for Fremont in 11 minutes. So you can't really hear it very well. I mean, it actually, paradoxically, sounds a little bit like early Laurie Anderson, but it's that kind of, like, very, uh, yeah, roboticised, but it actually sort of sounds a bit like it's stumbling over itself. It's not that easy to hear. And there's some very kind of interesting research about how quickly we gender voices. Um, that where we, Even when, you know, well, especially, I guess, when we can't see the person, we've, it's almost unconsciously one of the first things we do is, is gender a voice. And actually, human beings don't really like voices that are very um, ambiguous, um, even though 
they might be attractive in, in some ways. They certainly don't like them, particularly at the moment, <laughs> when they are roboticized or kind of explicitly uh, machine-sounding, even though they say they might in some ways. Um, but I just want to finish maybe by, by saying, you're moving away a little bit about thinking about intimate technologies um, and, yeah, to, towards thinking about the way in which voices come to dominate us in the city and how some ways of talking are being closed off or diminished. So in 2015, it was reported that of the 75% of UK adults who own a smartphone, a quarter never use it for voice calls. Um, only three years earlier, 96% of users were making at least one standard voice call a week. Of course, people are communicating in other ways through instant messaging, text messaging, WhatsApp, etc. so-called talking without speaking. Um, people have described this as, quote, the luxury of asynchronous communication, where, whereby uh, we no longer had to respond in the moment. And I think this also goes back to this question of anxiety and panic, that actually if someone rings you, you feel like pinned down, you know, that you don't uh, necessarily want to respond, that, that there's a kind of sense of a, an emergency um, there, obviously a very different scale from the kind of apocalypse, the nuclear uh, event that I was trying to say, talk about before. Um, but nevertheless, this kind of delayed uh, response uh, is becoming seemingly more, more desirable. Other uh, recent American research suggests that 39% of so-called millennials, like ignore, ignore that term, it's terrible, but interact more with their smartphones than they do with their significant others, parents, friends, children, or co-workers. Of the many questions these tendencies raise, so the kind of uh, you know dislike, increasing dislike perhaps of speaking to a disembodied voice, of even voice of someone you you know, um, is perhaps what happens to voices in the city when we no longer use our own, uh, when we're kind of surrounded by voices that we do not choose to hear and do not like adequately reflect power or politics in any real way, but kind of provide a sort of cover story for it, like the soft coercion point. Uh, I've been talking about before, um, you know, whether it be on transport and tannoys and supermarket, um, what room is there left for the singularity of our own vocal being, um, as Cavarero puts it, you know, and the, and the profound political importance of different voices? Um, you know, what, what kind of room is there for that when we actually operate uh, precisely in this kind of passive sense of listening, but to voices that are no longer attached to bodies that are possibly, uh, you know, not no longer human and they're certainly not chosen by us they're, they're chosen by brands or or, or, or companies or polit politicians in order to create a kind of particular affect and i suppose i want to think about this uh what room is there for political resistance not the, vo the voice of the young girl but of the kind of singularity of the voice um, and how that might come together uh, in situations of protest or collectivity um and i'll leave it yeah there <laughs>